Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard creative team. We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now on with the show. Okay, our guest today is renowned architect Bobby McAlpin. His eponymous firm, McAlpin, is known for blending modern and traditional elements to create bold, soulful, poetic homes that capture our imagination while still feeling familiar. McAlpin's prolific work has been featured in Lux Magazine, Veranda, Architectural Digest, Flower Magazine, and many more. They're also on the 8100 list and have published three books in partnership with Rizzoli, the most recent of which publishes this month, March 21st, Romantic Modernism. This okay, so this book, Romantic Modernism, is so it's it's a lovely book. It's so beautiful. And it's combining so many different ideas. Like romantic and modernism are two totally disparate ideas. So I want to know how is it that you come about mixing these two, these two totally different thoughts where modernism can sometimes be thought of as a little bit too structured or cold and romanticism might be too whimsical or soft or playful, but you do this so lovely. Well, thank you. Um, This book is a little bit of a departure uh, or or an advancement, however you would look at it uh, from our previous work. Um, We really are romantics. I'm a romantic, uh, really just meaning that I love... uh, I'm willing to beg, borrow, and steal whatever it takes to, to tell the story, you know, of who I've just met. And since we're all built of contradictions of all sorts, that seems to be the truest form is to do whatever it takes. But as the years have gone on, to answer your question about modernism and what it might have to do with romanticism, there are, um, when I was little, there was the box of 64 Crayola crayons. That was always the, it was the unreachable one. It just cost too much money. We were never, I was never going to get that box of crayons. It was the one that had the flip lid and it had the built in pencil sharpener. And it was the only box of Crayola crayons that had the silver and the gold crayons in it. And so I I have come to think of uh, classicism and modernism as the silver and gold crayons. And I have resisted um, using modernism directly and classicism um, literally in any form um, because uh, I just, by nature, I tend to resist doctrine. Uh, I think the minute you um, adopt a doctrine, you stop listening. And I think it's more important to pay attention to who's in front of you than it is to try to fit them into the boxes. And uh, so I guess at this age and and 40 years into my career, uh, I'm ready to pull out silver and gold crayons and do some more potent, bolder, braver work um, uh, than before. Well, I would love to, Liz and I were sort of reviewing the book together before jumping on. And um, I would love to talk 
about maybe start with your own home, which you don't call out in the book, but it is featured there, but you have published at other places. So I hope it's okay that we can call it yours, if you don't mind. Sure. Are you talking about my house in Atlanta? Yes, your home in Atlanta. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, That's the house that um, uh, Blake Weeks and I uh, built in Atlanta. Yeah. And we, um, you know, we're both sort of thumbing through it together to sort of dovetail off what you were saying. It is bold and it is, it has these very bold gestures, but then it's also pared back in so many places and very stripped down in a way. Mm -hmm. So I think that was sort of a a question that um, I had throughout the entire book. How do you decide when to really go for it as you have in some of the elements in the homes and where to remove. Part of my goal in doing this this newer body of work when it's appropriate is to say in five notes what previously took 11 to play out. In the first draft of that flat roof and parapeted house that is my own in Atlanta uh, now, it had a very, very steep roof on it, and it had uh, all of the telltale things. It had uh, diamond pane windows that were leaded glass. It had uh, uh, cascading roofs that lilt down low to the ground on the sides. Uh, it had everything that was romantic that would make it easy to look at and easy to walk toward. And then I got curious about what would happen if I took off everything that's making it easy to look at and just let it be um, just the bald truth of itself. And so I cut the roof off of it and I altered the windows slightly and it became a very bold thing and it was still the same person. It just was a different moment in its life. And I uh, always think about there's so many, you know, um, TV series and, and movie moments, you know, where the woman uh, who's uh, giving a speech is also has been fighting cancer and she gets into flop sweat and pulls her wig off. You know, I think about that moment uh, when I think about that house a little bit, that that's the magic moment, you know, is when is when all the artifice comes off and um And the truth just stands there loud and clear. Has the experience of living in the house been what you imagined when you designed it? Yeah, it has been. You know, um, it's a house that comes on very strong and bold on the street, but it takes every opportunity to break that down and so that it can find the humility and modesty in, in its recipe that is always essential to make a thing palatable and approachable. So it's a modern house. It is also a classical layout of a house, but you enter the side of it. And once you get inside of it, it has, it has acres of little tiny sticks that line the wall and turns it into a crate. And so it becomes kind of a shaky sketch of, of an interior and not a finite reflective interior that modernism is associated with. And it's also not a modern house with plate glass. It has a thousand window panes. 
And so it, it has texture, which is, a, it is part of the way that it, it takes the thunder out of it. It also has exceedingly low ceilings wherever possible uh, and very, very tall ceilings as the antidote for that in a rhythm throughout. One of the things I loved about it is that, you know, when you picture like a contemporary home, you really think of also contemporary interiors and, you know, sleek furniture bodies and very pared back, but you have some very, you know, you have lots of ornate antiques, whimsical some very objects. whimsical gestures. Yeah. Yes, objects. Yeah. And so I think that's something very surprising about your home in particular, but many of the other pieces in in here, yeah. you know, you pick it up thinking, you know, I'm going to be seeing lots of contemporary spaces and then it's it's not. And I, I loved that tension there. Yeah. You, it was sort of fighting your preconceived notions. Well, a, a house that knows itself really well and and has that uh, bit of modesty and humility in some, some way um, in its inception um, tends to love whatever you bring to it, whatever you bring into it. Uh, a house that's following a strict doctrine, so say a modern house that's full of modern furniture, um, doesn't like things that are not like it. Um, and this house is more of an arc. It loves everything uh, in the kingdom that you might drag home. And so the, the contents are really just a treasure chest of eccentric finds and, tra you know, through travels and through searching. So I, I really think about the house is, is, you know, what's backstage, what's behind the proscenium arch to in the left and right wings and behind the, that curtain, all these props, you know, and things that are just ready to go on show. Um, but uh, they're beautiful also in their jumble. Is this how you would typically work on your own home? And like, you're, it seems like you're pushing yourself with this house and maybe then you carry that into the next client's home. Well, you know, I, I think I, I carry what, uh, what seems to work and leave behind what doesn't really work for whom I've met, you know, whom I've just met. And the great thing I find about, you know, getting this opportunity uh, uh, you know, in a, in a constant way, uh, uh, whomever is, has just sat down in front of me. Um, if I listen to them and I always do, I'm going to walk to a slightly different corner to where I, fr from where I just was. And in doing that, I'm going to shop myself and everything I've ever noticed in my life. And I'm going to use all of that to, uh, play out what I've heard and who I've met. And, and that's, that's almost a form of therapy for me, uh, as well as um, hopefully a good solution for them. Okay, so because I actually know your home, I know where I've driven past it. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe you also did the house next door. Correct? Yes. I did. I, that is so fascinating to me. And I'm curious if designing a home to live next to your home, is that challenging? Like, how do you, do they, were they meant to complement one another? You know, you didn't want to repeat it. I, I'm just curious if that was a challenge. 
you know, it was it was an opportunity that I, that I, it really baited me to build um, the house that I wanted to build there because it gave me an opportunity to create the feminine complement to to my house. My house is definitely a boy. Uh, there's no doubt about it, and it needed its its sister. Now, I really think of them as being uh, totally brother and sister, but they are the brother and sister that are bad. They are so bad. Um, they are still <laughs> very different from from the context they're in. But it yes, helped. they are. Yeah. But the house on the left of me helps ease my house into the context. It kind of walks it in a little bit. I love how you're personifying these houses. And do you do that for every project? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a storyline, you know, there's somewhere I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to usually always uh, create a particular emotion. I'm hugely influenced all my life, certainly by film, um, by music, by um, uh by the kind of theater and drama that's created and by exaggeration, you know, all the things that kind of take you somewhere uh, different than an average house might take you. Okay. So on that note, I want to talk about some of the sculptural elements that you have brought into the architecture. I've noticed that when you really strip down the house, like you were talking about, it kind of is allowing you to do things that are a bit more sculptural. And there's one element that um, is in the beach house that you feature where you have these, it's almost gives the effects of like a surrealist curtain as part of the exterior of the home. It's kind of leading into the outdoor bar living area. It's sort of like a swooping it's at, it's Faith Hill and Tim McGraw's Bahamas house. Oh also yes, right. Well, yeah, that, yeah. We're we're talking about a double celebrity here. You know, this is the king and queen of uh, country music. So mm-hmm. that's a proscenium arch. That's a that's that's a stage basically, but it's executed in plaster. So um, all I had to do is just roughly sketch something uh, for my partner, Greg Tankersley. Uh, I said, Greg, let's do plaster drapery so it's permanent uh, and then make that entire so enormous glass wall disappear up into the ceiling. And he said, OK. <laughs> and that's what you see. It now. is so elegant. I mean, you but, almost... And because there's also a true wall of drapery behind it, you almost yeah. can't tell which one's fabric. And it, it it's an it's an incredible illusion. <laughs> but I didn't yeah. make the connection, the illusion with an A, to the, um, the stars who perform. Yeah. Well, okay. I have I have a controversial question for you. Okay. Where do you put like your soap bottles? So like every well, I mean, like, you know, everything is so perfectly appointed, hidden. And I'm like, where, where it's so 
edit it? You know, um, like where are the utilitarian yeah. items? Where have you hidden everything? There must be some sort of hidden storage solution that you've got that well, keeps all of that ugly stuff out of the way. There's, there's certainly are some hidden areas, you know, <laughs> like behind bathtubs. Very often I'll do a, a product trough and it's at the drape of your hand right on the back of your tub. So you can't see it as you approach the tub, but it's there when you're in the tub, you can reach it. And so there are, there are, there's a lot of tricks. And then there's also just being, um, wanting to live a beautiful life. And so you don't tend to, you know, leave a lot of crap around if you can help it. It's a lot of discipline building, Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's sure, part sure. of it. I'm not a minimalist though. I'm more of a maximalist. Uh, there are layers and layers and layers to, uh, what the kind of interiors that these houses usually get, not in every case, but in most cases, and that helps, um, you know, create a jungle for a few things to hide out in. I mean, I was so blown away by, I, I assume it's the powder room in your home with the faucet coming from the ceiling right? yes. into this beautiful like bowl of rocks. I mean, yeah. how incredible and unexpected. Does anyone ever say like, where's the faucet? Like, is this a sculpture? <laughs> I can imagine if you don't necessarily see the pipe, you're like, oh. I'm sure they it's do, just... you know, but, you know, a powder room is is a great place to really overdo it, you know, and to weird mm -hmm. somebody out because you don't have, it doesn't have to function all that much. It just, I mean, it has to right. function on a minimal level. What's more important is, are they going to talk about it when they come back? Same thing in a restaurant, you know, if you come back to the mm -hmm. table and say, you have got to go see the bathroom, you know, you know, you're in a great place. Yeah. It's just so fanciful and what it's such a party trick. I love it. But and and you and you do this throughout and I think that's sort of what is so um special and Liz I'm stealing your word because this was her word that she kept using and poetic about your client spaces is there is this whimsical jovial uh sort of like broad strokes but then there's so much that's really pared back. I know we, I've said this. Yeah. We've said this. There are but, definitely moments but, um, of surprise it's just, it is, yeah. that are... Yes. Well, I, I love to play with scale, of course, like any designer. But, you know, a lot of the things that I do, a lot of the houses, um, the interiors themselves are kind of, you know, a ship in a bottle. You know, I love big things. I love long, 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 long tables. And I love... Uh, if I'm in a low ceiling in a small space, I'd love to put enormous things in there. Um, I think big things. Quiet, what, why is that? They become the host, kind of the benevolent, quiet host. A lot of little things don't really support the rest of the things. They are ubiquitous. They're noisy. And, and so a big long gesture, a 15 foot long table in a room, even against the wall is a great long stroke. And it creates a different sound, kind of a bass sound to the room. It's sort of a lot of high pitched sounds. So I tend to deal with color that way. And also with the scale of furnishings, uh, Certainly, if I have the opportunity to drop drapery from a great height, I rarely can resist. Um, 
you know, and that's, you know, that's Hollywood set design, you know, coming through into the residential realm. Yeah. So tell us about drapery. You use it throughout um, and in some very, you know, we kind of touched on the the plaster drapery, but sometimes as a wall in and of itself. What is it about drapery that we should want to implement in our own homes? It's the great monumental scale of it if you have the opportunity for it. You know, I have drapery in my house that drops from three floors, you know, through the staircases uh, from top to bottom. And so that's an opportunity I couldn't resist. And then there's there's two-story drapery in my living room. Um, and it works acoustically. It also works, again, for that long, long, quiet stroke. Um, you know, it's the opposite of curtains on a window. You know, it's really a big, uh, when you think of it as a painting, it's a big, it's a big column of fabric. And it's a powerful thing, or can be. I, and I don't restrict it to windows at all. Uh, I really very often will do it as a divisional device in my offices and also in um, throughout a salon to break a large space into subordinate spaces um, that are more intimacy, uh, more uh, more intimate. And um, so the minute you create the thunder, you know, in the architecture, then you need to figure out how to also take it out of there uh, to or tame it. Well, I'm fascinated on how you use drapery to just soften the structure of these modern interiors, but then also to to work with them and to kind of also be these kind of solid monuments within the space. They're sure. very stunning. Well, there, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, that you're, you, I'm always looking for, if you're doing something that has a powerful ego to it, like two-story drapery, you know, or a modern house for that matter, um, or a classical one, um, you look for opportunities where you can get them. And for instance, the two-story white drapery that is in my living room in the Atlanta house, we collected 130 Irish linen tablecloths, none of which match. So they are they have initials on them. They are they are all Irish linen tablecloths that nobody wants anymore. And they're all sewn together in bands to make that monumental drapery. So it's kind of silently tattooed with history. Oh, that's beautiful. That is incredible. Where did that idea come from? Was it the sound of music or was it? Um, yes, this, she makes her, the clothes, it was sound yeah, of music. Oh, it was uh, both. I think it's probably, both. Probably, it was both. Yeah. probably, yeah, it was both. I think probably from there. You know, it's it's a very towny version of Dolly's coat of many colors, you know, because <laughs> it's monochromatic. That's incredible. Wow. I love that. And especially, you know, the recycling, the linen, because you're right. You know, I think antique linens are, are not necessarily the same as an antique uh, sideboard or something where everyone's yeah. eager to take them, you know, from their parents or in-laws and pass them down. So. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. It was fun to to find. You can't find them in nice places anymore. You find them in flea markets, you know, and in little stalls and antique malls because culturally nobody's buying them anymore. 
And so consequently, it, it's really some of the finest fabric, you know, ever manufactured. But it because it's not valued in our culture presently, it's inexpensive. You're looking at the finest embroidered linen in existence, viewed as is really kind of a secondhand rose. And and so uh, by mismatching it throughout the house, even on upholstery, lots of upholstery throughout the house, if somebody spills red wine on the cushion, just pull out another tablecloth and upholster it. And you don't have to, you don't worry about the color fastness. Is the dye lot going to be the same as that expensive fabric I ordered to originally cover this sofa in? You don't care because the mismatch is built in. It's already in the pudding, you know. What did your upholster say when you brought him some tablecloths for the first time? Well, I think given that it's two-story drapery cut into slivers and then reassembled, I'm sure he wanted to pull his hair out and <laughs> wondered what size work table what is it going to take, you know, to do all of this because he's got to make the the, the large palette of fabric yeah. before he can even begin making the drapery. I was curious what was the most challenging home in the book to work on? Certainly the Bahamas house was one of the toughest in there. And a lot of that's because it's on its own island. And so you have to make your own water or generate your own electricity, incinerate your own trash. You have to create civilization, literally, yourself. So there are no services uh, of any sort. And you're in a foreign context. And when you ride around those kind of, you know, aqua velva colored, beautiful waters down there around those little private islands, it's uh, something you dream about. Wow, what would it be like to have a private island? Um, well, I know now what it's like. It's, it's, it's a lot of trouble. And I yeah, kept noticing, maybe not the fantasy. No, no. I kept noticing, you know, about uh, a couple of years into the construction on that project, that the houses that were under that I thought were under construction when I went down there on various private islands really were abandoned constructions. Mm -hmm. And I started to learn why they were abandoned because they were probably three or four years into construction and they just quit. They just gave up, you know, but, um, but mm -hmm. this client, uh, persevered, you know, all the way through, I think it took five years probably to build, uh, that house compound. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but they finished. It's a stunning house, but yeah, that's you don't even think about like, how do you deal with potable water and sewer systems mm -hmm. and trash? Yeah. So is everything just kind of built into behind the scenes there on, on this island? Yeah, you know, if you have staff, there's nowhere to live. And so you have to build staff housing. And and if there's no really security and you're celebrities with children, you know, you got pirates, so you need protection. And there's a lot. There's so many layers, you know, to wow. uh, getting what you wish for, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Not really thinking about pirates when I'm building a new house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, you really, those things don't occur to you, you know. <laughs> okay. You're obviously, you know, an, you're an architect, but you are an interior designer. Are you an artist? Liz, this was a question yeah. I think you had. How do you define yourself? 
You know, I mean, I'm primarily an architect. I love doing interiors for myself, but it is why we have an interiors company, McAlp Interiors, that's run by Ray Booth, my wonderful partner. And is we needed it to f- complete the architecture. I felt even in the early years, you know, back in the 80s, I was losing some good houses to bad interiors and they would never be shown or published and I would never be known if they weren't published. Mm -hmm. So I created my own interiors company and did a lot of the initial interiors myself. But let me tell you, being an interior designer... Uh, you got to be pretty tough. It's a it's a way harder job, I think, than being an architect. Uh, is that just maybe more pushback from clients? Is that more challenges in terms of what what is that? It's pretty much everything. I mean, you really are kind of a contractor, you know, and you're only as good as all the promises that have been made you from all the vendors. So you're shipping, receiving, you're dealing with lots of money. There's tons of accounting and taxes and shipping and expediting, coordination of labor. You're kind of everything. And because Mm -hmm. you're an interior designer and because it's in a category that more people think they know a little bit about, they're going to treat you like they're going to push you around a little bit. Um, Mm. Mercifully, architecture is a tad intimidating and they tend to behave better. (laughs) 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 They tend to go, okay, you're good. I trust you. Uh, We'll, we'll I'm not going to design my own roof. So yeah. 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 But I might try to design my own sofa. Yeah. So I guess there's yeah. the, yeah. Exactly. exactly. What sorts of projects are challenging you now these days? Because many of these, I mean, the the Island House, you must have worked on that. I mean, because it was published in 2017 all in Architectural Digest, correct? Yeah, so, so it started in the early 2000s, you know, um, for it to be finished in time. So uh, they're all good and they get more and more exotic. Um, you know, the older I get and I never know what I'm going to be asked for. You know, I've designed headstones for people at their own private chapel, you know, that I never knew I'd be doing that. Um, I've designed a monument for, uh, you know, for a lost son and, and I'm designing a house to house a full size assembled dinosaur skeleton, uh, inside the house um right now so so it just gets crazier and crazier and um it's a wild ride and i'm loving it that's that's an interesting one yeah how do you how do you design something like that in a space that's meant to be residential but the scale will have to be exactly you know um I really opted to put it in a smallish space. So it seemed all the more invasive and all the more scary. And, um, and like, how did it get in here becomes part of it as opposed to how a museum might deal with it. And I also paired it with Mm. a really lush cocktail lounge that sits right up near the legs of the dinosaur. So I figured, you know, drinking and music uh, was a great thing to pair with a dinosaur. 
you know, because oh, you so can cool. sit with a dinosaur and have cocktails. It makes the rhino head in your home that's so team. large seem like, <laughs> yeah, what's yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, what kind of, do you know what kind of um, dinosaur it is? Like what, what scale are we talking? Are we talking T-Rex? Are we talking, you know? No, a T-Rex <laughs> would be too tall. I know that much. Uh, you know, it's the one that has the collar around his neck. So it has a lower oh, gravity. I forget. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, oh, so oh my that is so cool. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I Is this person an art collector? Were they just like the kid that loved dinosaur? I mean, I know you probably can't tell us too much about the class. I think the like, what's the context? You know, I think uh, certainly they are they follow art, and I think being able to purchase a full size dinosaur took them as by surprise as much as it took me that I was going to do a house for one. You know, I think they were shocked by it as well, and they ended up buying themselves a dinosaur that's been in storage now for years and this will be the first time it gets to come out and play <laughs> was that the pitch when they came to you you know it, they schedule a, an appointment and i'm sure do a intake something or other is, is that or did it come later in the project I think, no, it was in the initial conversation. I think it came about a third of the way into our first phone conversation, our first Zoom call. Um, oh, my gosh. That's and, I love that. Oh, uh, by the way. I, I couldn't. Oh, no, I was just thinking like, an, oh, and by the way, we have, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Exactly. It was actually really funny because uh, I had that call where I was interviewed to do the house. And then I was going to Los Angeles for some engagement out there. And this decorator that had been um, trying to get one of her clients to hire me for years and years uh, was from Los Angeles. And she said, gosh, if you're coming out here, why don't we have lunch um, out here? I'm going to be in Los Angeles the same time you are. And it, coincidentally, we ended up in the same hotel just by coincidence. So I met her for lunch. And she said, what's what's new? And I said, well, after this, I'm, she said, where are you going next? I said, I'm going to Sun Valley and uh, for the first time to do a house that will hold a dinosaur. And she said, get out. She said, you know, my husband is a dinosaur hunter. And I said, what? <laughs> what in the world is a dinosaur hunter? And she said, he finds dinosaur bones and assembles them into full uh, uh, erections. And, and I said, oh, my God. Wow. Well, by the time, you know, two days later that I got to Sun Valley and to the client, I pieced together by then that because of the gallery that she had bought it from in San Francisco, that gallery had mentioned when I Googled them, this decorator's husband. And I knew that that dinosaur came from world. her husband. So within a week's time, uh, I saw where it came from and who, you know, wow. who found it, who made it and who's storing it right now. What a small world. That's yeah. Well, I, um, back, back to the book. I, um, <laughs> yeah. 
one of the things that I, I kept seeing as just sort of a moment over and over with sort of these beautiful like swoops, you know, a, um, a rail on the stair. They're also sort of the, uh, would you say, Moroccan inspired sort of roof lines. Um, where where does your love of that sort of gesture come from? Like it's um, it's so elegant, but also not super common, I guess, in in architecture that we're seeing these days. You know, I I, I think um, I I really search for uh, uh, emotional accuracy as a design goal. Um, and I kind of set forth, you know, what my goal is for something, for what my read on it is. And again, I'll beg, bar and steal whatever it takes to get there, um, too. So I'm not a purist uh, in that way. And I also keep myself a little bit ignorant um, that I don't, I'm not a great academician uh, about all of this stuff. I, I research after I record what my intuitive notion is only to then get it right but i don't try to know too much in the front end until i need it lest it influence me too much so anything anything goes anything's likely to show up you know in order to transport you you know to a different realm from where you just were Um, and that that can be the gift you know right there to all your friends and loved ones and family do something at your house that they just won't get anywhere else in the world. That's truly evident in your work. They really are one-of-a-kind stories. Well, I think as long as they keep coming, you know, and as long as I keep listening, they're going to continue to be very, very different. Mm-hmm. But are you listening to the home? Are you listening to the place? Are you listening to the people? Who's Who gets the loudest voice here? Well, it, it kind of depends. It's uh, Some of it is the why, Like, why do they want to do this? You know, I I want to know a little bit about what the cross-section of their life is. You know, it it matters whether this is maybe their primary home or their second home or their third home or their fourth home, you know, in in, in Mm -hmm. giving them an opportunity to, to, in some cases, take a little walk on the wild side more than they may have done initially. And I find that people really tend to tell the truth about themselves more in their out of town houses than they do with their in town houses. Uh, I think people learn more in the, in the conceiving of their second homes than they do their primary ones, particularly if the primary home came first. Um, Do you think that's just like being more comfortable with risk in a second home or why do you think that is? I think it's it's natural probably to build your initial house with the idea that there are a lot of eyes on you. It's a self-portrait of sorts. Uh, you kind of care how you show up that first time. And I think it gets a lot more casual after that and probably more accurate after that. Once you leave town and you think nobody's looking at you, you know, you'll you'll be you a little more probably but who knows you may sell that house in town and do another one and tell the truth next time get it a little closer to right you used to be a um, architecture professor i'm curious what you would tell a student start starting their first year of of school now 
what would you advise they go into school with? And then how maybe has uh, your advice changed over the years? I don't know exactly how it's changed. I would certainly tell them that it is a wonderful life to live in design, to, to live in the act of creation as a, in a constancy is a, is a fantastic way to walk your way through your life. And it also puts you in the seat that you are being invited into a celebratory chapter of so many other people's lives. The people that walk toward you are celebrating their lives. Um, they're not in some kind of deep trouble. You're not an attorney. Um, you know, you're, you're there to help them go to some place that, that they can't seem to find any other way than to build it. And uh, you're going to be their partner in the movie of all that, you know, uh, as long as you last, as long as you're on screen and leave them, you know, in a better place. It's a great thing to do this for for a livelihood. That's so poetic. Again, that word, <laughs> you know, that's the word we kept using when going through your book. It is. It's just very poetic. What would you say people do wrong when they're building homes? Um, you know, when some, if we have had a few listeners write in and say, I'm about to embark on a, I'm building my dream home. I'm nervous. What would your advice be to them about what to do and maybe what not to do? Uh, I'm probably not the one to ask that question. You know, I think that most people or, or most any of us, you know, are a little too conscious of resale in what we're building. And so a lot of us build a lot more than we want and a lot more than we need or and a lot more than we're ever going to activate any reality to because it's the product that will be more easily absorbed if we change our mind and want to go somewhere else and do something else. And that's not really a, a formula for success in terms of creating a high level of poetry. Again, I think it... Um, if you're fortunate enough to be able to not worry about the resale of something, then you're going to probably get a little closer to the truth than if you are, you know, a, a good house is not a long real estate amenities list of things. So much of what's being built now, you know, has its own different uh, failure factory than a factor than it did 15 years ago. You know, right now there's a lot of what I would call Pinterest casseroles, you know, out there. It's it's the, you know, hot glue and stapled version of every single thing that they've pinned, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, thinking that that's going to lead them somewhere divine. And if you just have all these things and all these flavors and all these parts and pieces that are now the current badges of success, then you're going to be in the club uh, of some sort. But I think for me, since the beginning of my practice, I have always admired in American architecture of the 1920s that the houses in any city built in the 1920s uh, have remained covetable properties throughout their lives, uh, even to this date. And that was when America looked to Europe for for how do we create an architecture that's not, you know, a wood frame Victorian painted lady 
thing and is more resonant and has more longevity. So I have had an appetite since my 20s in wanting to create uh, inheritable work, uh, houses that have an upward lineage and not a downward lineage. Um, so they remain uh, relevant and and versatile too, so that they can be. Yeah. What What would you would you say that um, the things that you created early in your career have withstood that in your own mind? You know, by your own measures. You know, I, I think most of them have. You know, I do get the opportunity every once in a while to go in something that I did twenty five years ago or thirty years ago, and I my eyes immediately fall on the typology of can lights, you know, and and lighting and how heating and air conditioning was handled in those early houses and 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 what I know now that I didn't know then and what tends to be a sleeker, quieter uh uh thing that is sure to to not tell on you later. You know, I'm really sidestepping things that I think are going to date a house ever because I care about what happens generationally to that property, that it remain relevant. And that requires a certain level of sophistication in all those disciplines. Um, And so you have to avoid it. You know, same thing with decorating and the materials that you choose for the architecture is choosing untrackable things. If you walk into a house that was built in the 90s, you're probably going to find a house full of tumbled marble. And that alone is going to tell you right when that house was built. Or there'll be a particular window type that was being manufactured at that time, but uh, not so much now that's going to tell on you. And if you want to create a vaguer point of origin, you know, for a house, which I think is important, then you're going to have to figure out how to get around all that. I mean, that that is a question we get time and again from listeners. They want to choose materials that are timeless. I mean, what is your advice? I, obviously. Part of it is surrendering, you know, to saying, you know what, this is a building and it's going to have a long life. I need to choose materials that have a way of becoming more beautiful every day of their life instead of less beautiful every day of their life. If if you built something that looked its best in its first year of life and not quite as good in all the next years of its life, you've really buggered up. <laughs> you You've done something that's going to tell on you big time. And so creating an affinity for things that take on time and wear. Uh, certainly, I, I always think of a Southerner as having a, 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 a love of patina, you know, which is the beginning of if you if you can learn to love and appreciate and crave uh, something that shows its age beautifully, then you're probably on the right track to have a longer, attractive life. What, what would you say is an example of, of a material that ages beautifully? 
like just a handful of, you know, white marble or brass. Limest I don't know. Limestone stucco that is not painted, roofing tiles and, and things that uh, are prettier when they're older than they are when they're new. Mm -hmm. Things that, yeah. that change in that wonderful way. And so, uh, again, we probably do look to Europe again, you know, for why have, why have all those buildings lasted so much longer than ours have? Mm -hmm. Not only in their physical existence and use, but also in how much we crave them and how much we still think they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. And because of their beauty, we make them relevant. Uh, still. And I'd rather be a part of that story. This has been great. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, I'm, I'm certainly happy to quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> you know, I think the Europeans really have the right idea. I, I always think about this, like they, everything, you know, you think of Paris, like the dry cleaner, the CVS, they're all in these incredible buildings and, they they prioritize beauty, but also longevity. I think in a way that yeah, definitely. Americans don't, because yeah. they're already living in a city that's thousands of years old. You know, it's it's Absolutely. already just baked into the life. Right. Yeah, the architecture itself is real. Yeah, Bobby, thank you so much. Um, well, you're so welcome, and I appreciate being asked to your podcast and. Uh, uh, look forward to listening to your others. Yes, please. Uh, could you share with our listeners how they can find you, follow you, find your new book with Rizzoli? Gosh, you know, you can certainly find it uh, by going to Rizzoli's site. You can also find it by going on Amazon, I'm sure, uh, as well. And it's uh, called McAlpin. And um, that's the heading we all work under. And with the goal of turning McAlpin uh, from me uh, my name into a place because there are a lot of us. There are 50 something of us. Uh, there's so much talent uh, behind the name McAlpin that hopefully that helps represent. And Romantic Modernism is the subtitle. Yeah. I And we didn't even mention you have offices in Atlanta, Nashville, New York, and Montgomery. That's right. Did I miss any? No, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this was, it was such a treat to look through your book and it's, it is poetic and just beautiful and a, a real, um, you know, experience just. Uh, well, thank it. you. And keep up with us because we'll be starting the next one soon. Wonderful. It'll take a All few right. years to finish it, but uh, <laughs> I already know how um, it's going to start. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy, happy decorating. decorating.